Brentano said, every bit of thinking is about something. He said, no physical thing is intrinsically about anything. If I go to the beach and I pick up a rock and I say, what's this about? You commonly say, well, that's not, that's nonsense. It's not about anything. It's just a rock. The only time there's any aboutness in a physical thing is if we mentally attribute aboutness to it. Welcome to the Lucas Scrobot Show. I'm Lucas Scrobot, and this is where we uncover purpose, relentlessly pursue truth, and own the future. I'm your host, Lucas Scrobot, and we are joined by Dr. Michael Ignore, who is a tenured research professor of neurosurgery and pediatrics at the State University of New York, Stony Brook, and has served as the director and serves as the director of pediatric neurosurgery. And award-winning brain surgeon, the list goes on. He was named one of New York's best doctors by New York Magazine in 2005. He received his medical education at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgery and completed his residency at Jackson College Memorial Hospital. His research on hydrocephalus has been published in journals, including the Journal of Neurosurgery, Pediatrics, and Cipro Spinal Fluid Research. He is on the Scientific Advisory Board of the Hydrocephalus Association in the United States and has lectured extensively throughout the United States and Europe. He is also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute and has a strong interest in the mind-brain relationship and philosophical underpinnings thereof. Dr. Michael Ignore, thank you so much for being here with us on the show. I'm, I'm so honored that you're here. Thank you, Lucas. It's a privilege to be here. And it's very, very nice to meet you. Now, this evening, I was sitting down to dinner with my boys. I have four boys, um, seven to nine or 10 months. And when they when they heard that I was talking to a neurosurgeon, they freaked out. They're like, can he come over for dinner? And I was like, well, I don't know if he can come over for dinner. But I was like, well, what, what would you want to ask him? And they asked the question that I think you probably get ask it at, at every dinner party and that every person listening to this show is thinking right now, which is what is it like to cut someone's head open and do surgery on their brain? Like how, how much are you cutting it open? Are you just drilling a small hole? Like fill us in on the nitty gritty there. Well, uh, the, the, um, actually the, the, the surgical aspect of the job is in many ways the easiest aspect because it's, it's kind of a rote thing. It's kind of like typing or playing the piano. You sort of learn it when you first start out, it's kind of hard, but uh, you learn it. I've, I've done probably 7,000 brain operations in, in, wow. in my career. Wow. And after a while, it, 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 it really, it's, it's not that hard. Um, I find the, uh, emotional parts of it, uh, the interpersonal parts of it, uh, it can be very, very stressful. Uh, that, that's by far the hardest part of the job. The actual surgery is, is fairly straightforward. So what do you mean by the, the emotional, interpersonal <clears throat> part of it? It's like dealing with the patient, like the, the, the risk that something could go wrong in that, or is it something else? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, the, the, um, a lot of what neurosurgeons deal with are, are profoundly um, – uh, important things for their patients so that, uh, as my wife likes to tease me, um, meeting me is always the worst moment in a person's life. Uh, and so it kind of puts stress into situations. I mean, I, if I have a clinic and 20 patients, uh, there are <clears throat> 10 or 15 of them who 
this may be the worst moment of their life is to have to face a brain tumor or something seriously mm. wrong with their child or something. Whereas for me, it's just a part of my ordinary day. Mm. And, and I, I, I have to keep attuned to that. Um, there's a, there's a, an adage among physicians and it's particularly uh, held among neurosurgeons that you live with faces in your head. Um, and what that means is you, you live with the faces of the people over the years who you treated, um, where you wish you could have done more for them. Uh, you know, if, if you're a really good neurosurgeon, um, you have a success rate in your surgery of, you know, 98%, you know, things go really well. Uh, but that means that 2% of the operations won't go well. Uh, and you, if you do 200 operations a year, that means four people a year um, have their lives destroyed uh, yes. and you watch it happen. Yes. Uh, and you have to live with that. If you're practicing for 30 years, it's, you've got 120 faces in your head. So that, that, that's the hard part is the interpersonal part. The actual surgery itself isn't all that difficult. Um, but uh, dealing with the human beings that are on the other, other side of the surgical drape is, is a real challenge. Do you, do you find, <clears throat> you know, in that, that, that phrase, do, do you find that you have to fight to stay connected and not to distance yourself emotionally <clears throat> from your patients? To some extent. And uh, there's a great deal of psychological pathology among neurosurgeons, partly because of that, you know, that, that people kind of build a wall. But um, <clears throat> uh, I, I can't build that much of a wall. It's just not in my personality. Um, and uh, there are various ways that, 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 that doctors deal with that. I think one of the most um, effective ways to deal with it um, is to obviously try to keep doing the best job you possibly can uh, mm. and to restrict your practice to things that you know you can do well. Uh, and my, my, my own principle in taking care of my patients is that my job is to make them better uh, by any means I can. Uh, so if I know of a neurosurgeon who can do a particular operation that the patient needs better than I can do it, I feel that I have treated the patient optimally by sending the patient to that neurosurgeon. Mm. So you can't let your ego get in the way. So I've got a certain kind of group of operations that I do fairly well. And what is that group? Uh, and I, I'm sorry. What What is that group of your specialty that operations? Uh, well, I, I do a lot of pediatric neurosurgery. So I do a spectrum of, of things like uh, surgery for hydrocephalus, replacing shunts, surgery for brain tumors in children, surgery for uh, something called a Chiari malformation, which is a compression at the base of the brain, surgery, surgery for scar tissue on the spinal cord, things like that. But there are other op operations like surgery for aneurysms <clears throat> or uh, functional neurosurgery, which is surgery for... Um, seizures and things like that, that I referred to partners of mine mm. who are more skilled at, at those particular operations. And it, it works out very well. I, I think that's optimal care. And in, you write about how that the brain doesn't have any <clears throat> any nerve endings, right? The brain doesn't feel pain. So are you normally putting these people under general anesthetics when, when they go down or is it just local? Um, and I'm asking for my kids and myself, Sure. <laughs> but do you like, are you actually taking the skull all the way off and you're like, you can see the brain and hold it in your hands? Uh, well, uh, the, uh, it's, uh, the, my surgery is almost always under general anesthesia. Um, one of my partners does a lot of epilepsy surgery and what's called functional neurosurgery. 
And um, he does a lot of surgery under local anesthesia, where mm. he uh, injects uh, lidocaine into the scalp, uh, and the brain itself doesn't have a sense of pain, so you can operate on the brain with a person awake. Uh, and he does that quite a bit because he can test the brain. And I, I've done that myself, although it's not my specialty. Um, and um, <clears throat> uh, many of the operations I do involve making a small opening in the skull and going inside the brain with, an, uh, with a small endoscope and placing catheters. Uh, but a lot of the surgery involves taking off a large part of the skull. And, and you, you don't hold the brain in your hand, but you, you see the surface of the brain and, and then do the work that you have to do. Wow. That, gosh, such a cool job. I, 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 I am so glad that there are people like you who have dedicated their lives to this. And as you said, it's not, it's not always easy because you, you have to, you, you feel a level of responsibility for when things don't go wrong. And so I just want to say thank you um, for your work. Um, now, now you, you, how do you say this? You believe that our, our mind isn't in our brain. You believe that uh, in, in the things that I've read about your writing, you believe in something called dualism and materialism. Um, and can you explain that and break that down? Because I think a lot of people that I know I talk with and I engage with, there seems to be this um, mix or even contradiction of this idea that, well, we we evolved, but then we're also very superstitious and we believe in kind of the spirit realm, um, but, oh, you know, our, our mind is in our brain. And so what is the truth or, well, yeah, what is the truth? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, first, the, the term superstition is an interesting term and is often um, applied to <clears throat> the belief in, that we are, that we have a, a soul and that there's a spiritual aspect to us. But um, I think that the belief that we're entirely material creatures is far more superstitious mm. than the belief in the, in the soul. If you think, if you define superstition as a belief that's held without really empirical evidence, uh, because materialism is not supported by neuroscience in any meaningful way. Um, <clears throat> modern materialism, the idea that, that human beings are just matter, uh, really began with Rene Descartes a philosopher uh, in the uh, 16th century. And Descartes uh, proposed that um, a, a human being was uh, a mixture of two separate substances, that there was what he called race extensa, which was uh, just the physical body. Mm -hmm. And he defined, he defined matter as just things that are extended in space. And um, race cogitans, which was um, the, the mind, which he thought was an immaterial substance. And um, uh, later philosophers have kind of called that theory the ghost in the machine. Mm. Uh, and what materialists did is they took Descartes' idea, which I think was mistaken. I think Descartes was wrong in his metaphysical perspective. They took that idea and they just got rid of the ghost. So we're just a machine. So ba ba basically, they, they toss the ghosts in the garbage. Um, and modern materialism is just the machine of Descartes, uh, that we're just this, this meat machine. And the problem is, of course, that there is no way that one can imagine that a, 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 that a machine, a, a piece of matter, 
uh, could have thoughts and feelings and memories and things like that. It's not clear from a scientific standpoint how that could possibly happen. Um, and there have been a bunch of different theories over the years uh, to, to try to, to try to rectify that. Um, in the early 20th century, there was behaviorism, which was the theory that whether the mind existed or not didn't really matter. You could just uh, study uh, the behavioral inputs and the behavioral outputs and sort of treat us just like little reflex arcs. Uh, but that failed. That, that failed for a number of reasons. Isn't, but, uh, and, um, yeah, because doesn't that point to kind of the social constructionism that we don't have free will, we don't have our own fruition, but we're just a, a byproduct of our environment? Uh, yes, yes, very, very much that way. Um, the um, uh, <clears throat> for a whole bunch of philosophical reasons, it, behaviorism was ultimately demolished by um, <clears throat> uh, linguists who uh, who looked at language and realized that uh, in the development of human language, there was a, kind of a program uh, written into the human mind. Uh, that would um, uh, that would come into effect in early childhood and allow us to attain language, and you could not explain language in any behaviorist sense. Mm. Uh, Noam, Noam Chomsky was the linguist to really champion that view. And honestly, if you look at Chomsky's work in the, in the 1950s, over a period of several years, he simply demolished behaviorism. And when he got done, nobody believed in behaviorism anymore. Um, the next theory that really caught the attention of, of uh, philosophers of, of the mind was identity theory, which was the viewpoint that uh, the mind was simply identical to the brain. That, um, for example, the experience of pain was identical to a certain secretion of neurotransmitters in my brain, that, that, that they were the same thing, um, just understood under different aspects. Uh, that fell apart because they're obviously not the same thing. <laughs> that my, how, my how experience that, how of pain that? is not the same thing as a chemical. Okay, okay, right. <clears throat> they they may correlate with one another, but there's a there's an old um, uh, principle in philosophy called uh, Leibniz's rule, and it it, it sounds kind of obvious, but it's a principle that the identity theory is the theory is violated, and the principle is that in order for two things to be identical, they have to be exactly the same. Right. Right. You can't say something is identical if it has any difference between it and something else. Uh, so uh, the fact that mental properties have nothing in common with physical things, mm. there is no property of the mind that is the same as the property of the body. The body is extended into space. It has mass. It has color. It has texture. The mind is not extended in space. It has no mass. It has no color. It has no texture. There's nothing is the same. So it can't possibly be the same thing. So, so how, help me, because I've never heard that sentence mm -hmm. before that, you know, I think traditionally we hear that we have a mind. Um, if you come from, you know, a, a Christian Judeo or religious worldview, you have this idea that we have, you have your, your mind, which we identify as our brain. Then we have our heart, which is like the seat of our emotions. And then we have our body. Um, and sometimes we'll throw in the world word soul or spirit in there, but it's kind of like this non-tangible thing. So are you saying that our, our mind is actually our soul or like our spirit, no, that it's not it's our, a, our brain? It's, it's an interest. It's a, it's, it's a great question. In some ways, it's the fundamental question. Um, and, and there is an answer to it. And there's a very good answer to it. To understand the answer, it's helpful to just look at, how materialism went wrong, and then we can see how to get it right. Mm. Um, the 
the neck, uh, the identity theory was sort of tossed out by the by the 1980s. Nobody really believed that anymore. And um, the next theory that was really popular was uh, functionalism. And functionalism is basically the idea that the mind is what the brain does. It sort of defined it defined the mind as the activity of the brain. Um, and um, the analogy that was very commonly used was that um, the brain is the hardware and the mind is the software. Yep, so I've heard that. The mind is the software that runs on the hardware. I've heard that. Um, and that, that's called computer functionalism. And that, that's, well, that was very popular and still has a lot of adherence. Um, I think it's, um, it's wrong. And it's, it's wrong in an extreme way, meaning that the mind is not only not a computer, but the mind is the antithesis of computation. The mind is what computation is not. Hmm. And um, the reason I say that, now one could model the brain as a computer in the rather fundamental sense that computation is the matching of an input to an output according to an algorithm. So you have something going in, the system does something to it and then spits it out as something different. And that's, that's how a computer works basically. So the brain kind of does that stuff in in many different ways. You could say the brain is a kind, has a kind of a computation going on. The thing is that the mind has a property that has been called by philosophers intentionality. Mm. And uh, back in the 19th century, there was a German philosopher uh, named Brentano who asked a fundamental question. Uh, And the question was, what is it about a thought that is different from a material thing? Like how, what's the difference between a thought and a material thing? That's a great question. It's a great question. And his answer was very simple and very to the point. And actually his answer was a recapitulation of what scholastic philosophers had said for a thousand years, but he said in in a particularly uh, clear and effective way, he said that intentionality is the hallmark of a thought and only thoughts have intentionality. Material things don't. Mm. Intentionality is a technical philosophical term. And what it means is that uh, there's an aboutness to a thought that a material thing never has. That is every thought you have, is about something. It's directed to an yeah, object. Yeah, that's right. The object might be a physical thing. It might be a concept. You know, I'm I'm thinking about Washington D.C. I'm thinking about a city, or I'm thinking about justice. I'm thinking about a concept. But thinking can always be followed by the word about. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. intentionality. So yeah. Brentano said every bit of thinking is about something. He said, no physical thing is intrinsically about anything. If I go to the beach and I pick up a rock and I say, what's this about? You commonly say, well, that's not, that's nonsense. It's not about anything. It's just a rock. The only time there's any aboutness in a physical thing is if we mentally attribute aboutness to mm. it. You know, if this rock was, a, was your prized rock that you love, you could say, well, this is about my collection or something, but that's mental. Because so you attri- you've attributed every, meaning to that thing. Yes, but the thing itself doesn't have any aboutness. It's just that you mentally attribute something yeah, to it. Yeah. So Brentano said you can always tell a thought from matter, and then a thought is about something. If you think of computation, the way a computer works is that there is no aboutness in it. And the easiest way to think of that is think of a word program where you're typing an essay. 
The word program doesn't care at all what the topic of your essay is about. True. I can type an essay where I support one particular philosophical position, and then I can take the exact same word program and type an essay that supports the opposite philosophical position. True. And the word program couldn't care less. I can, it's same thing with the computer in your camera. You can take a picture of uh, a daytime scene and a picture of a nighttime scene, and your camera doesn't care because computation is blind to meaning. Mm. Um, computation is a simple mechanical process, but meaning is, is not in it. And in fact, if you think about it, it would be a really difficult word program if the word program only worked for certain opinions. That is, if you could only type yeah. certain opinions on it, it would really mess yeah. you up. Yeah. So the whole point of computation is that it's blind to meaning. And the whole point of thought is that it's always about meaning. It always has a, a, an object. Computation never has an object of its own. You can put one into it. I can type an idea on Word, but the Word program itself doesn't have any ideas. So that's why I say that computate that the mind is not only not computation, the mind is what computation is not. The mind always has a meaning and an and a, and a, and aboutness, intentionality. Computation never has that. So, so, so to to understand, you know, so my brain when I move my arm, my brain is just firing. I mean, I'm just, you know, I've heard different, firing with electrical signals you know, through my neurons to my brain to move my muscle. And that's, that's not necessarily about anything. That's just a signal being triggered in my brain to move a specific action. Um, sure. And that is, that is something that can be measured materially. Whereas mm -hmm. um, whenever I attribute, whenever I think of something or even, you know, it has to have some sort of purpose, some sort of aboutness, some sort of meaningness to it and that is the ethereal kind of immaterial spirit realm if you will where our our thoughts and our consciousness lives right one one way of looking at that is is an old philosophical way of looking at it um called the zombie problem and the zombie problem is this is there anything inherently contradictory about the following scenario that science has made a zombie of you that does everything you do in terms of external behavior, but without your mind. That is, could you make like a meat robot mm -hmm. that, that did everything? It moved, it talked, it did this and that, it was programmed, but there was no mind in it. Now, the question isn't, could you actually do that? The question is, is there any logical or scientific reason why that would be impossible? And I think the, the clear answer is there's nothing impossible about it. I mean, it, it might be scientifically difficult to do. It may never be done. But there's nothing, there's no logical contradiction in that. That is, you know, if, if you arrange the atoms the right way, you can get them to do all sorts of things. Right. So we, can, we can arrange atoms and, uh, that go on a rocket ship to the moon. We can certainly get atoms that look like a person and can move arms and legs and, and make sounds. So the reasoning then is if... There is no scientific or logical reason why you can't just make a material thing do exactly what a human being does. Then the fact that we have minds must be something 
that transcends material scientific things. Wow. That is that because we know we have minds, we know we're not meat robots. Right. And the fact that we, right. that we know we're not as a matter of fact, and the fact that we could be a zombie if all the material things were taken into account, the fact that we're not a zombie means that there's something in us that transcends material. So here's a maybe a tangential question, but like does a fox have the same thing about it? Like does it have thoughts? Yes. yes. Yes, animal. Yeah, animals. Animals have thoughts. The uh, actually, it's curious that Descartes thought they didn't. That is, in the Cartesian way of understanding the mind, he thought animals were meat machines, and they actually had no minds whatsoever. They had no no first person experiences. Um, anybody who has a dog knows that's not true. Mm. Meaning, animals very much have minds. What animals don't have is they don't have reason. They don't have abstract thought. Uh, and I'll I'll get to that shortly because that, that that's a critical aspect of understanding the mind and so that's what so that's what differentiates us and it and you didn't use the word soul there you said that uh an animal has a mind um mm -hmm. so but does that um conflate with like their that they have a soul or they have a spirit or are you saying that sure, sure. let me um I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment great uh, i just want to go on the so computer fun functionalism has pretty well fallen apart there are neuroscientists and philosophers who believe it, but most people, I think, in neurophilosophy would agree that there are real problems with computer fun functionalism, in large part because of this problem that the computation and mental activity are quite different things. I would say they're the opposite things. Uh, so actually, what has become a very popular uh, materialist viewpoint uh, uh, over the past couple decades is uh, eliminative materialism. And eliminative materialism is the philosophical belief that the mind does not exist. That is, that we don't have minds, that we are purely biological creatures, and that our biology has essentially um, misled us into thinking we have minds. That, that the mind is basically just a kind of a kind of an error in our brainwaves that we don't really understand it. Kind of like um, we've we've tricked ourselves. We've tricked ourselves yeah, into thinking yeah. that we have some sort of autonomy, that we have some sort of free will, but really we're just, you know. Right. And the the eliminate the eliminated materialists would say not only have we tricked ourselves into thinking we have free will, we tricked ourselves into thinking that that we're thinking. <laughs> that is, they don't think we have thinking. Uh, they're saying we're just meat robots and we're deluded. But isn't um, that thought now, in and of itself deluded because they're thinking? Precisely. The, the 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 difficulty. Well, I I give material. I, I give eliminated materialists, and the, the champions of this are Paul and and Patricia Churchland, who are very prominent philosophers. But there are a lot of eliminated materialists out there. The um, I give them credit. Eliminated materialism basically is a is a confession. It's a philosopher's confession that materialism cannot explain the mind. That is that I think it's come to the point in the twenty first century where thoughtful philosophers have kind of realized that materialism is not an adequate explanation to explain the mind. Mm. Faced with that realization, they eliminated the mind rather than giving up materialism. So it's, 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 it's a bizarre, so they're crazy. They're they're absolutely crazy. But <laughs> no, that is, that is crazy. I mean, if, if they, they're, they're honest in the sense is they, they admit matter cannot explain the mind. Any person who's not crazy would say, okay, then I won't be a materialist and I'll start looking for other ways. They say, okay, 
let's get rid of the mind. Well, it's like they said, okay, since I can't prove that the mind, I can't, I can't define that the mind is within materialism, then I'm going to just say that I myself am crazy so that I can deny the fact that the mind exists. Right, right. Although they wouldn't say they're crazy because to say you're crazy would imply that you have mental states and they'd say that you don't have mental states. So as I said, they are crazy. Uh, so, um, but I do no give sense. them credit yeah. for acknowledging that material, the materialists before them had tried all these Rube Goldberg uh, contraptions to try to explain the mind. And materialists say, hey, it's a lost cause. So let's just get rid of the mind. It just sounds like um, postmodernism, isn't it? It's just like this deconstructionist where it seems like there, there's an agenda to prove yeah. a presupposed uh, outcome. There is, yeah, there is very much, yeah, there, there's a there's a, a post-structuralist and a, a, a flavor to eliminating materialism. Um, all of these bizarre ways of looking at the mind, which I think really began with Descartes, Mm. Um, although Descartes was a dualist, he thought we, we, we had spirits, but I think he had, although he was right in that respect, he was wrong in his metaphysical system and his medical, his, his metaphysical system was just adapted to modern materialism, which is complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. All of it was a change from the classical way of understanding the mind that began with Aristotle, uh, that really reached its peak with Thomas Aquinas. Uh, as well as with many um, uh, Jewish and Islamic scholars, uh, Averroes in the Islamic world, Maimonides in the Jewish world, um, had a beautiful explanation for, for the mind that I think is, is clearly basically right. Uh, and our modern views have gotten away from what, what really is the truth. And the truth, I think, is the Aristotelian Thomistic understanding of the mind. And it's it's... A little complex, but it's quite elegant, uh, and it fits beautifully into an understanding of nature. In the Aristotelian understanding of nature, um, Aristotle asked a kind of a fundamental question. He said, if you look at a thing that exists, like a tree or a rock or a person, what do you have to, to say about it and know about it to identify it rigorously? Like, how can you describe it? And he said, there are really two things that you can, that you need to know about. It. One thing that you need to know about it is what's intelligible about it. That is, say, for example, you're looking at a tree. Say, well, it's brown, it's 30 feet tall, it's got green leaves. You can go into all that. You can go, you, you can go into the botany and all the detail stuff, anything you want. That's the intelligible part. And he called that the principle of intelligibility or its form. Mm. Then he said, but what if you have a, a whole forest of trees and you want to just describe one of them? Because we're not talking concepts, we're talking about things that exist. And he said, so you have to say which tree you're talking about. And he called that the principle of individuation and he called that matter. Mm. So everything that exists in the Aristotelian system is a composite of form and matter. It's a particular thing that is intelligible. And that's really, that's, in fact, that, that way of looking at the world is, is basic to us, and we retain it. That is, when we say information, the form mm -hmm. of information means Aristotelian form, intelligibility. So the Aristotelian metaphysical system, I think, is, was a brilliant insight and is the one that really allows us to understand the world the best. So when he looked at human beings, he said, 
human beings are things like trees or like rocks, and they got form and matter. Said the form, he just gave a different name. He said that's the soul. So all the soul is in a human being is the form of the human body. And by form, he didn't mean the shape, although that's part of it. He meant everything you can understand about that person. Every understandable, intelligible aspect of that person is is his soul. Mm. So my soul <coughs> is everything that can be understood about me. Everything. The color of my hair, the color of my eyes, the sound of my voice, the thoughts in my mind, my emotions, my physiology, the beating in my heart. That's all my soul. Mm. My matter is just the fact that it's me and not the guy sitting next to me. So because the guy sitting next to me also has hair and eyes and hearts and things like that. But my hair and my heart, that's my matter. Yeah. But my soul is everything that you can understand about me. And what Aristotle said is that every living thing has a soul. Every living thing. So um, a bacterium has a soul. You didn't know about bacteria, but they have souls. Um, a plant has a soul. <clears throat> an animal has a soul. A human being has a soul. Wow. But, but different living things have different kinds of souls. He said, for example, plants have what he called a vegetative soul. And a vegetative soul is a very basic soul. And what it means is that the plant seeks uh, nutrition. It seeks sunlight. It, it excretes. Mm. Um, but it doesn't see anything. It doesn't think anything. It doesn't move. It mm. just sits there. So he said animals have what he called a sensitive soul, which means they have all the stuff that plants have. In a sense, they can they, they can take in nourishment, they can excrete, they have physiology. In addition, they have senses, they can see, they can hear, they can feel, and they have locomotion, they can walk around. So he called that a sensitive soul. He said human beings have a rational soul. <clears throat> and a rational soul is radically different. A rational soul has the plant vegetative soul, meaning just like a plant, we've got physiology, I've got biochemistry inside of me, just like plant has this idea. It might, it's, it's different. It's appropriate to me, but it's still biochemistry. Um, I've got eyes and ears just like a dog does. <clears throat> but there's a part of my soul that um, Aristotle called the intellect and the will that are not material. That is, I'm capable of having abstract thought. And what he means by that, it can be thought of in a rather simple way if I think of me and my dog. When I feed my dog, <clears throat> my dog is delighted to get any food I put down in, in front of her. She, she's kind of a foodie. So I'll give her a treat, and she goes crazy. I give her a second treat, she goes crazy. She loves food. Yeah, yeah. She never, ever thinks about nutrition. She doesn't give a darn how many <laughs> calories are in that biscuit. That's true. I think about it because she's getting kind of fat. So I think of, well, I can only really give her like five dog cookies today, or she's going to gain too much weight. I'm thinking abstractly about the food. I'm thinking about what's going to happen in the future, uh, how many calories, uh, is this going to give her diabetes, things like that. She's thinking that the stuff tastes really good and she wants more of it. Yep. So <clears throat> my ability to reason, my ability to, to, to go outside of just the food itself and think of it in, in an abstract, immaterial way, Aristotle said, is unique to me as a human being. Animals can't do that. Animals don't have podcasts. They don't, animals don't write books. They don't do plays. 
They don't do mathematics. <clears throat> but they do a lot of physical things. And um, so that's what's different about people, is that their souls have an intellect and will that is abstract. And Aristotle said, that's not material, that's spiritual. Wow. So, and what St. Thomas Aquinas did is essentially, he took Aristotle's philosophy and applied it in a religious context. Aquinas said, the immaterial aspect of the human soul is the aspect of the human being that is created in God's image. Because God is, is, is a spirit, he's not matter. And that's how we are created in God's image. It's not that God has a heart and a thumb and eyes, but it's that God can reason, and God has an intellect, and God has a will. That's why we're like God. And so the spiritual part of us isn't some wispy, ghosty thing that, you know, is translucent or anything. It's just our abstract ability to make judgments, to have an intellect, mm. and to have free will. And so, that's why the will is free, because it's not material. So the <clears throat> Eastern mysticism kind of frames, frames it as we have a, a body, which is just like a vehicle, it's just like a car, and then you have your spirit or your soul, which is fragmented from the universe, and you're just you're just passing through this life in this vehicle, in this body, but you're saying that that there's not a separation. I'm not, you know, because people will say like, well, you're not your body, you're your soul, but you're saying, no, you are both, that you are both at the same time and those two things are inseparable? Yes, um, and that particular dichotomy that you're describing, that is viewing human beings as, um, composites um, of, of soul and body or as sort of two separate substances where the soul inhabits the body and then sort of jumps out of it when it wants to um, is kind of the difference between the Aristotelian and the Platonic way of understanding man. Plato saw us kind of as machines that weren't sold. And in, in the Platonic view, kind of the whole point in life was to get rid of the stupid machine because the soul, the form, was, was what was beautiful and glorious and eternal. And Aristotle felt that the connection between the soul and, and the body was much more intimate, mm. and that while it is possible for a human being to exist in a compromised state without his body, and that, that uh, Aquinas confirmed that, um, that's not the natural state for us. The natural state for us is to be a, is to be a body. And the basic Aristotelian Thomistic understanding of the human person is that we are integrated, mm. that we are a soul and body as one unit. Mm. Um, and, uh, but the soul has powers, particularly powers of intellect and will, that while they um, are involved with the body, they don't come from the body. They're not material. They are, uh, uh, I think a very good way, to, a very successful way to look at that is that the immaterial intellect and will of a human being have the body as a necessary part, but not a sufficient part. That is, the physical body is necessary. Oh, and this is where we get more into the neuroscience. In the Aristotelian Thomistic view of, 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 of human biology, <clears throat> we have powers of the mind that are material, just like plants and animals. And that would be our physiology, our hormones, our neurotransmitters, all that stuff. 
and um, vision, hearing, taste, uh, sensation, and motion, all of those are completely physical. Yeah. There's, there's, there's nothing wispy or ghosty about that. In addition, though, we have the ability to think abstractly, to reason and free will, and those things depend upon the physical body for their normal operation, but they don't come from it. Hmm. That is, our ability to reason, uh, the body is necessary for that. I mean, let's face it, if, if your body is uh, crushed by a steamroller, your ability to reason is, is going to be compromised somewhat. Um, so there's like but, an interdependence at, at play in that overlap. Yes. And, and actually, in, in, in particular, in the, Aristotle went, went into this in some detail. Thomas Aquinas went into it in enormous detail, as did many of the scholastic philosophers. The general way of looking at it is that what happens is, is that let's say that I am looking at a tree and I'm trying to understand the tree. The form of the, of the tree is grasped by my, my eyes and that is transmitted to my brain in a, in a purely physical fashion. It's all physics, it's yeah. all light rays and things like that. The form then gets in my brain and I have a perception. Mm-hmm. And uh, that form then, I form an image of that form. That is, I kind of extract it and can hold it in my mind as an image. That's also a physical thing. That's called imagination. Then Aristotle and St. Thomas said that the intellect takes that image and it extracts the intelligible things mm. from the image. And then it comprehends what the tree is about in an abstract way. So I can understand the tree scientifically, as well as just seeing the tree. So seeing it is not science, but abstracting um, its color and its weight and its biology from it is the abstract thing. And that abstraction is the intellect. Let me let me kind of unpack what you just said there. So we, we like I'm looking at you and this is all happening in, in the physical material world. I'm I'm looking at you, it comes into my mind. I I then interpret that and then I add meaning. My intellect pulls out what's happening and associates meaning to what I'm seeing. And that is that that interplay that hap- does that happen in my my brain, the mind kind of interfaces with the brain? In, well, <clears throat> the the way that, Ar- that the term Aristotle used is that the imagination presents the image to the intellect. Mm. And it's, it's um, so you can, it, I, I think of it myself as just like it, it holds it in its hand and says, here, take wow. a look at this and tell me what it's all about. The um, metaphor that Aristotle used for that is actually quite, quite, quite beautiful. And he said that it's um, like a museum or a room full of statues with the lights turned on, you know, without a candle. And he said that what the intellect does is it it lights the room so Mm. you can see it. You can see what it means. Mm. And if you think about it, it's much the same way in in everyday life. We'll be walking down down the street and we'll, we'll pass a tree. And we see the tree, but we might not think much about it. But then again, if you pass a tree and say, you know, I wonder if that's a maple tree or an oak tree. It's an awfully pretty tree. So you stop and you start to examine the tree. That's when your intellect kicks in mm. and starts to get a deeper insight into, into the biology of the tree. Mm. But you could just walk past it and see it without thinking much about it. And your intellect doesn't play much of a role there. Um, Aristotle said something that I think is, in my view, the most beautiful expression in philosophy. 
Mm. And he said that what the mind, <clears throat> what the intellect does is it extracts all of these intelligible things from the world. And he said, <clears throat> the mind is in a way all things. That is that you can hold all things in your mind. You can hold um, facts about nature, you can hold concepts, you can hold ideas about justice and mercy and literature and, and art. Anything that exists can be held in your mind. And he said, the mind is in a way all things. Wow. Well, and, uh, but what's being held in your mind is in the intellect and it's not material. Because mm. if it were material, you couldn't fit it in there because <laughs> it's too big. So, um, uh, so the, there's, Human beings have a spirit in the sense that there are powers of the human mind that do not come from matter. That's what is spiritual about us. Animals don't have that. that that's what makes us different from animals. The fact that we have a spirit and that spirit is a thing that enables us to reason. So there's body. Precisely. There's, there's mind, which is what we've just been talking about, where the, it's the, the perception and the the intellect, but the intellect interfacing with the mind is your spirit. Yes, yes. And uh, Thomas Aquinas particularly identified the spirit with the, the aspect of our nature that coincides with the um, viewpoint that we are created in God's image, mm. that God is the spirit, and that um, the part of our makeup that is um, in his image is our capacity for abstract thought, which is immaterial. That is all that we have for part one of this two-part episode. We're actually going to come right back where actually Dr. Egnor then takes this all from, you know, philosophy and, and theory, which you can easily say, well, how can you prove that? But then he actually demonstrates this with actual experiments that happened, actual neuroscience. It is amazing. You want to go and listen to the conclusion of this episode. Also, I love getting your questions. If you have a question about this episode or any other episodes or topics that you've been thinking about, wondering about, please message me on WhatsApp at plus one two zero two nine two two zero two two zero, and I will respond and even play your question right here on the show. This is a great time to get my book, Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting, at a time where everything um, seems to be very chaotic. We need to remember that we are agents of change in our life and in the world around us, that that, that requires for us to take action as an individual over our life and a responsibility over our life. Anchored the Discipline to Stop Drifting it is a short 100-page read, highly actionable. Um, so go and get my book. The link is in the show notes. Finally, that's all for part one. I'm Lucas Robot. You are a change maker. And head on over for the conclusion of this episode with Dr. Edmore.